Acts chapter 4, uh, verses 23 through 31. You might have it memorized by now. Uh, this is the fourth time we are looking at these verses together. Um, and you know, really, as we've, as we've worked our way through this, we have really been doing a, a little mini uh, study on, on prayer and the, the role of prayer in the life of the church. When we first looked at this text... Uh, several weeks ago, we, we first noticed that when the apostles were released by the council, uh, they immediately went to their friends. And they told them all that had happened to them. They, they told them that they had been arrested and tried and, and threatened. But they didn't just go to their friends and tell them what had happened. They, they went to their friends and they prayed about what had happened. They, they immediately lifted up their voices to God in Prayer and, and from this, we learned the importance not only of having friends, but of having friends with which we can pray. If we are going to live the lives we've been called to live, we need to be part of a praying community. And if we're going to be part of a praying community, we need to know how to pray. And so we spent two Sundays looking at their prayer itself. The first Sunday, we focused on their prayer of, of praise, how they, how they begin the, uh, the, their prayer, naming the God to whom they pray. You see, when the apostles cried out, they cried out to the sovereign Lord, to the maker of heaven and earth, to the ruler of all things. They weren't praying to, to someone who was unlikely to be able to help them or un, unlikely to be willing to help them. On the contrary, they were praying to the sovereign Lord, the, the almighty God who, who had demonstrated his willingness to come alongside his people by giving his son as the sacrifice for their sins, that, that they might know his blessing, that they might be reconciled to him and made heirs of his coming kingdom. When we pray... Like the apostles, we are praying, yes, to the Sovereign Lord, but to the Sovereign Lord who has loved us deeply in the Son and who has reconciled us to Himself and has promised now to work all things together for our good. And that's why the apostles are able to go on then to set, let the, uh, to set their petitions before Him. We, we saw that after praising God, the apostles set before Him three petitions. First, they asked him to take note of the council's threats. Second, they, they asked him to give them the boldness to continue preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ despite those threats. And third, they asked him to continue stretching out his hand to do those miracles that validated their ministry. And again, from these three petitions, we, we learned the importance of praying like servants, of, of praying as, as servants of the King, as those who have been called and, and commissioned to, to serve His kingdom and to, to serve His name throughout the world. And we saw that if we pray like servants, if we pray that His will be done, then we can ask whatever we will, knowing that it will be given to us, knowing that God will do, whatever is necessary for us to do, those good works which he has prepared for us that we might walk in them. And that's exactly what I want us to look at this morning. What I want us to see this morning is God's response to their prayer. We, we see it there in verse 31. Luke writes, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was 
shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word with boldness. And so we see that, that God's response to their prayer is, is really threefold. There, there are three aspects to what God does in response to their prayer. First, the place is shaken. Second, they are filled with the Holy Spirit. And third, they continue to speak the word with boldness. And so I want us to look at each one of these aspects this morning. Beginning with the first, the, 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 the most obvious, the, the place where they were gathered together was Shaken, that is, the room literally shook. Luke is not suggesting that they were somehow moved in their hearts or that they felt a trembling in their spirit. No, he is saying the room where they were shook. We can imagine that those who were nearby, even if they didn't understand it, they felt it. They, they knew that the shaking was real. That's what happened. The question is, what did it mean? Why did God respond to the apostles' prayer in this way? Well, I think the significance of the shaking becomes clear when we consider similar events recorded for us in the Old Testament. Consider first Exodus uh, chapter 19. In Exodus chapter 19, the people of God come to Mount Sinai. Now remember the, uh, the story to this point. The, the people were slaves in Egypt, and God had sent Moses to, to bring them out through, by his strong right arm. Through ten plagues, he had subdued the powers of Egypt and so that they were actually chasing them out of the country when they went. And now those people who have been redeemed from slavery in Egypt come to Mount Sinai where God will renew his covenant with them as Abraham's children. And in order to, to do that, in order to renew that covenant, he comes to be in their presence on Mount Sinai. And it is a majestic sight, a, a terrifying sight. And at his presence, we are told in verse 19, the whole mountain trembled greatly. The mountain shook because God was there. We see something very similar in Isaiah chapter 6. Again, Isaiah has been called to be God's prosecuting attorney against the people of Israel who have failed to keep that covenant renewed at Sinai. And now Isaiah is brought into the very presence of God and we're told that his glory fills the temple and he sees the, the angels singing, Holy, Holy, Holy. And in verse 4, we are told that the foundations of the thresholds shook. Isaiah was in the very presence of God, and in his presence, the earth shook. So in both of these passages, the, the shaking or the, the trembling of the earth is an indication of God's presence. Now, of course, there is a sense in which God is present everywhere all the time. He is, as we say, omnipresent. That is the reality that the, the psalmist is referring to in Psalm 139 when he, when he asks, where can I go to escape the presence of the Lord? Yes, the psalmist knows that, that if he goes to the highest heaven, God will be there. And likewise, he, he knows that if he goes to the, the deepest hell, God will be there. God is everywhere all the time. That's what it means to be omnipresent. There is nowhere that God is not. 
But the scriptures also speak of God's presence in another way. They they speak of God's special presence at, at particular times and in particular places. We actually recognize this reality every time we gather for worship. At the beginning of every worship service, we do what? We invoke God's presence. Now, if God is everywhere all the time, why do we need an invocation? We need an invocation because we're not asking for simply God's general, all the time, everywhere presence. We are asking for God's special presence among his people. We are asking God to remember his promise that where two or three are gathered together, he will be there. We are, we are asking God to inhabit the praises of his people. To fill our gathering the way that his glory filled the temple in the Old Testament. We are asking for the special presence of God among his people. That's the presence. That's the the special presence that was indicated by the shaking on Mount Sinai. That's the the special presence that was indicated by the the shaking of the thresholds when Isaiah was brought into the very throne room of God. And I believe it is that special presence that is indicated here in Acts chapter 4 as the apostles pray. The room shakes because God is present even as he had promised to be. Remember the promise that Jesus had had made, the the promise that Sam was, was talking about with the kids. Jesus had promised that he would be with them to the end of the age Even as he had commissioned them to be his witnesses in Judea and uh, uh, Jerusalem and Samaria and to the end of the earth, he had told them, and I will go with you. I will be with you even to the end of the age. As he had said in the upper room, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And God shakes the room where those first Christians were gathered to assure them that he remembered his promise, that he was keeping his promise, that he was with them. And we can understand why such an assurance was, was necessary at that moment. It would have been all too easy for the apostles to, to look at their arrest and, and to conclude that that. God had forgotten about them, that God had maybe even uh, abandoned them. We, we do that sort of thing all the time, do we not? We, we look at our circumstances, we look at the things going on in our lives, and, and we make deductions about where God is and what God is doing. When, when things don't work out for us, or, or worse, when, when things work decidedly against us, it is all too easy for us to feel that God has abandoned us, that that he has forgotten, that he is far off. Well, the apostles were people just like us. And it would have been easy for them to to follow that same train of thought, to, to think that God had forgotten them because things were now going against them. And so God shakes the room where they were gathered. He shakes the room to assure them that he is still with them. And the significance of that assurance cannot be overstated. Think about the significance of of having the sovereign Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, the, the, the God of providence who rules all things according to the counsel of his will. Think of the the significance of having that God 
Proclaim that He is with you. It's, it's what Paul is referring to in Romans chapter 8 when he, when he asked, if God is for us, who can be against us? You see, from a, a human perspective, the, the apostles were in a bad way. The very council that had arrested and killed Jesus was now threatening them. They were facing an enemy that that not only could they not defeat, but an enemy they could not evade. They were in a fight they simply could not win. If they defied the council by continuing to preach the good news of Jesus Christ from a human perspective, it was almost certain that the, the council would have the power and authority to make good on their threats. But the truth of the situation was very different. It looked from a human perspective like they were in a no-win situation. But God is assuring them that the the truth is actually just the reverse. They're in a situation where they cannot lose. Because the maker of heaven and earth is for them. The council can only do what their God permits them to do. As the apostles acknowledged in their prayer, the, the nations rage, the, the people's plot, uh, the kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord. But in the end, it is the Lord's purposes that will be accomplished. Remember the rest of Psalm 2, this psalm that the apostles are, are quoting here. When the nations shake their fist in God's face and say, we will not be ruled by you, we will not acknowledge Jesus as our king, how does God respond? This almost tells us that he laughs. He he holds them in derision. He is in no way threatened by their raging. He will accomplish his purpose. In fact, more than that, he will use their rage to accomplish his purposes. And therefore, if the God, if God, uh, maker of heaven and earth, is for the apostles, who can be against them? If God is for the apostles, they have nothing to fear. If, if God is for the apostles, they can continue to preach the word without wavering. That's why the early church father, John Chrysostom, said that God shook the room where the apostles were so that the apostles themselves might become unshakable. That's what God is doing. He he is establishing those stones that he has chosen to be the foundation of his church. And, And we are here today because of that shaking. We are here today because he was with the apostles. There's still a question that lingers in the back of our minds, I think. After all, most of us have have never experienced anything like this, at least not firsthand. Some of us may have felt the the presence of God in a a special way as we we prayed, but, but few, if any of us, have ever felt the room literally shake. And so we want to ask the question, is this assurance of God's presence for us too? Or was it only for the apostles, those who God chose to be the foundation of the church? I want to suggest to you that it is really for us. God's presence is promised to us 
as well. We, we first know that God's presence is promised us because Jesus' promise was to be with the apostles until the end of the age. But when he's, he says that he's going to be with the apostles, he means not only the apostles themselves who will not live to the end of the age, but he means all those who will believe through the apostles' ministry, all those who will be engrafted into the apostolic church. If you are a member of his church, then he is with you. Because we stand on the foundation of the apostles, the promise of God's presence belongs to us. And so God is with us too, as those who, who stand with the apostles. And that's why this is actually recorded for us in Scripture, Paul says elsewhere that the things recorded in Scripture are recorded for our benefit. God shook the apostles, or shook the room where the apostles were gathered, so that they might become unshakable, yes, but so that also all of his people throughout the generations might become unshakable. Remember what I said last Sunday about the signs and the wonders that were performed by the apostles. They, they had a, a special role to play in that foundational era, in that era when God was laying the foundation of the, the church. But he doesn't continue to work those miracles in the same way today because that foundation is already set. And the same is true for, for public, uh, you know, tangible assurances like the shaking of the room where the apostles were gathered. When God shook Mount Sinai, that, that was not uh, uh, an ever-present reality for the rest of uh, Israel's life as a nation. He did it at the beginning to assure them that he was with them and then they were to look back on that event for assurance throughout the generations. And in the same way, we today look back on the shaking of the room where the apostles were gathered that we might become unshakable, that we might remember that God made a promise, that he kept that promise, and that he has not changed. He is still with his people even today. And so even though we have never felt the room shake the way that they did that morning, the promise of His presence stands for us. God has promised to be with us. And if God is with us, then who can stand against us? If God is with us, then just like the apostles gave themselves to the work to which they had been called, we could continue to give ourselves to the works we have been given to do, no matter who stands against us or tries to stop us. Because the sovereign Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, the God of history, stands with us. And so this is the first lesson that we learn. The, the first lesson that we learn is that God is with his people. The second thing that we learn here about God's response from their prayer, we, we see in the next phrase of verse 31. Luke tells us that when they had prayed, not only was the room shaken, but they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And again, I, I don't want us to, to miss the significance of this. In response to their prayer, God fills them with the Holy Spirit. Now that may seem a little strange to, to some of us because in our tradition we strongly emphasize the, the once-for-all time significance of Pentecost. That event in which God poured out His Spirit upon His people once and for all time. 
That has profound significance for the church today. It means that there is no such thing as a Christian who does not have the Spirit. As Paul himself says in in Romans chapter 8, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. To, To be in Christ, to be a Christian, is to have the Spirit. That's that's clear from the the teaching of Scripture. And we are right to emphasize it. But the Scriptures also teach, just as clearly, that those who have the Spirit must walk by the Spirit. Those who have been baptized but with the Spirit must keep in step with the Spirit. This is, uh, for example, clear in Paul's letter to the Galatians. In Galatians chapter 5, the passage in which he sets forth the the familiar fruit of the Spirit. When when Paul is discussing the, the fruit of the Spirit, he commands the Galatians to walk by the Spirit. In other words, he, he says, you have the Spirit, now you must walk in His power. The, the lives of those who have the Spirit, the lives of those who have been sealed and, and baptized by the Spirit, will only be characterized by the fruit of the Spirit as they endeavor to walk in the Spirit. Those who have the Spirit must use the Spirit's power to live the lives they've been called to live. Paul, Paul makes this clear in another of his letters as well. Or actually, at the end of that same passage, he says, if, <clears throat> if we live by the Spirit, that is, if we've been born again, if, we, if we've been made alive together with Christ by the Spirit, then let us also keep in step with the Spirit. If we've been born again, let us walk. It's the, the reality that, that Paul is driving home. It's the same reality that he drives home in his letter to the Ephesians. The Ephesians, whom he acknowledges, were sealed with the Spirit when they first believed the gospel. He yet, he yet nevertheless, goes on to command them to be filled with the Spirit as they live their lives. So let's, let's put that together. What's the point? What, what is the point that's being driven home here? The point is that those who have been baptized with the Spirit, those who have been sealed with the Spirit, must also be continually filled with the Spirit if they are to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, if they are to walk in a manner worthy of His gospel. Just as you must repeatedly be filled with good food in order to have the physical strength you need to to do the works you've been given to do, so you must be regularly and repeatedly filled with the Spirit in order to have the strength you need to do the work you've been given to do. Yes, the the Spirit has been given to His church. Yes, every Christian has the Spirit, but we must now regularly and repeatedly be filled with the Spirit as we endeavor to do that work that we have been given to do. We, we actually saw this earlier in this chapter, in verse 8 of, of chapter 4. We saw that, that Peter was able to boldly proclaim the, the gospel of Jesus Christ before the council that had arrested him for preaching that very gospel because he was filled with the Spirit. And now we, we see that, that all of them are filled with the Spirit, that all of them might go on proclaiming that gospel despite the council's threats. And it is the same for us. If we are going to do the good works that have been prepared for us to do, if we're going to live lives worthy of our calling, 
Whatever that means. Does that, does that mean for you confessing Christ is the reason for your hope with a coworker or with a, with a neighbor or with a, with a family member? Does that mean giving a, a cup of cold water to a, to a thirsty stranger? Does that mean doing your work as unto the Lord, whether or not your boss is looking over your shoulder? Whatever it means for you to do the good works that have been prepared for you to do, you will do them only as you are filled with the Spirit in that moment. It is by His power that you are enabled to do that which you've been called to do. And because it is the filling of the Spirit that enables us to live the lives we've been called to live, that is the reason that our lives must be undergirded with unceasing prayer. You see, I don't want you to miss the fact that, that yes, they were filled with the Spirit for the work they'd been given to do, but they were filled with the Spirit in response to their prayer. In verse 29, they prayed, Grant to your servants to continue to speak the word with all boldness. That was their prayer. And in response to that prayer, God filled them with the Holy Spirit. You see, when we pray like servants, when we pray as those who are at God's disposal, when we humbly devote our, our bodies to God as living sacrifices, denying ourselves and, and submitting to His will, when we come before Him as servants, He will gladly give us everything we need to do His will. Nothing you need to do the works that have been prepared for you to do will be denied you. This is what Jesus means when he says, ask whatever you will, and I will give it to you. He's, he's not saying, hey, I'm a, I'm a spiritual vending machine, and you can, you can get your Mercedes here. He's saying, listen, whatever you need to do the works that I've prepared for you to do, they are at your disposal. Simply ask, and they will be given. And that is why we must pray. It's why we must ask, because everything that we need is available to us, and everything we need is found in the person of the Holy Spirit. All of God's good gifts are, are unfolded into Him as He fills us. Think about what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. As he's praying for the, uh, the Ephesians, he, he, he says to them that all the immeasurable greatness of God's power is at work in those who believe. All the immeasurable greatness of God's power. And if you're wondering what that really means, he, he goes on to say that it's the very same power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. That is the power that is now at work in us through the person of the Holy Spirit who fills us. All that we need to do his good pleasure is in us as the Spirit fills us. And so again, ask yourself, what are the good works that you have been given to do? What are the good works prepared for you? Are you a, a husband or, or a wife? Well, everything you need to love and serve your spouse is available to you in the person of the Holy Spirit. Are you a, an employee or an employer? Everything you need to do the work that you've been given to do in a manner worthy of the Lord is yours in the person of the Holy Spirit. 
Are you a neighbor or a, or a citizen? Everything you need to seek the common good, to seek the good of the other, to put their interests before your own. Everything you need to be the neighbor you've been called to be is yours in the person of the Holy Spirit. All you need to do is ask, and it will be given. Ask for the strength and the, the wisdom and the, the love that you need to do His will, and He will gladly fill you with His Spirit. It's what the apostles did, and it's what we must do as well. But there's a, a third aspect here to uh, God's response. Not only does He shake the room and, and fill them with the Holy Spirit, but, but we see the third aspect of his, his response in the last phrase of verse 31. We're told, and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now at first glance, that, that doesn't immediately appear to be an aspect of, of God's response, because after all, God's not the actor. It is God who shook the room. It is God who, who filled them with the Holy Spirit. But it's the apostles who continue to speak the word. And, and no doubt they, they spoke it in the power of the Spirit, as we just saw. But, but still, it's the apostles who are speaking. So it doesn't appear to be part of God's response. I, I understand that objection, but, but I think it misses the point. Yes, it is the apostles who continue to speak the word. That is true. But it is also true that their speaking of the Word is the fruit of God's work in and through them. And so, yes, their, their speaking is part of God's response. Now, I know that can be a bit confusing. It's the apostle's action that is properly called God's action. I, that's a little bit confusing, but that's okay because it's always confusing. It's always confusing whenever we try to, to think through the, the relationship between God's sovereignty and man's agency. You've, you've heard me say it many times. We, we affirm both because the Scriptures teach both, but, but we don't understand how they fit together. And we don't really need to. We simply need to believe what the Bible says. The Bible says that God is sovereign, and the Bible says that man is free to act and is responsible for those Actions. And so as confusing as it might be, it's important for us to see that, that God responds to their prayer by working in them to do the good works that they had been given to do, by working in them to continue proclaiming the word boldly. And it's important for us to see that because I think it teaches us a, an important truth. We can only do the good works that He has prepared for us to do in the power of the Spirit. That's true. But we must do the good works that He has prepared for us to do. We don't get to let go and let God, as is sometimes said. Simply because we are praying to God uh, that He might uh, fill us with the Spirit, we still have to do the work. It's as Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, we are to toil, struggling, we are to toil, struggling. Think about those words. We are to toil and, and struggle with all His energy that He powerfully works in us. And so we toil as He works. The apostles were God's chosen instrument to deliver the faith once for all time to the saints. That is a work that they could only do in the power of the Spirit. But it's a work that they had to do. And the same is true for us. 
We can only do the works we've been given to do in the power of the Spirit, but we must do those works in the power that has been given to us. And this means that our lives must be marked by both prayer and toil. The apostles entreated God to grant them that they might continue to speak the word with boldness, and then they continued to speak the word with boldness. They, They prayed and they toiled. It wasn't either or, it was both and, and it's the same for us. We must pray. We must undergird our lives with unceasing prayer, and we must toil. We must ask God to to grant us that we might do the good works that he has prepared for us to do, and then we must give ourselves to doing those good works with all our might. We must pray that, that God would cause our love for our neighbor to abound more and more. That is a good prayer. Pray that God would cause your love to increase, and then devote yourself to loving your neighbor in actual practice. We must pray that God would cause our words to be gracious, seasoned with salt. And then we must devote ourselves to controlling our tongue and using our words to build up. We must pray that that God would indeed make us content in every situation, in plenty and in want, for the sake of his kingdom. And then we must devote ourselves to seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness rather than the pleasures and treasures of this age. See, it's not either or, it's it's both and. Both prayer and toil. And so we must give ourselves unreservedly to both. So let's put all these pieces together. We've seen that that God's response to, to the apostles' prayer is threefold. God first assures them of his presence, He he fills them with the Holy Spirit. And finally, he works in them to do the works that he has prepared for them to do. In other words, God assures them that no opposition will be able to stand against them. He then gives them every necessary provision for the work to which they have been called. And then he works the actual execution of that work in and through them. Such is God's response to the prayers of his people. Let the wonder of that sink in. God is with you. He is providing for you, and he is even working in and through you to accomplish his good purposes. It's why the old hymn speaks of being winged by prayer. Prayer is the means by which God takes our lives and consecrates them for His service. You've been called into the service of the King. We talked about that last Sunday. You've been called into the service of the King of the cosmos. That is an honor beyond imagining. That is a, a privilege incomprehensible. But in and of yourself, you are not sufficient to the work. But you're not by yourself. He is with you. And through prayer, he fills you with the Spirit and fits you for his service. 
Therefore, let us give ourselves to prayer with a fresh urgency, not as some discipline that we must do in order to, to prove God that we are faithful disciples, but rather let us give ourselves to prayer as the means by which we access the immeasurable power of God, the same power that raised Christ from the dead. That is the power that is available to you that you might live the life that you've been called to live, and it is yours for the asking. It is what God gives in response to prayer. And because God gives such gifts to those who pray, that is why we call this call to prayer good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, we do rejoice in your goodness. We thank you for your grace. We, we thank you that, that you respond to our prayers. That you give to us in the person of the Spirit everything we need to do your will. And then you even use those gifts in and through us to accomplish your purposes. Father God, may we be more and more people who give ourselves to this sort of prayer and then give ourselves to the toil of working for what we've prayed for. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.